Okay, today, revisiting Mark Holder. Thanks very much for agreeing to talk to us again, Mark, in your beautiful garden here today. Um, when did we last talk? It was 2019, I think, early. So have you changed your approach since then? I wouldn't, I wouldn't have changed it, Si. I think um, you're always making small little adaptions as time goes on. And I think probably the biggest change would be, and it might not last, is that I felt that the value in the betting was probably at the longer prices than the shorter prices. So last season I felt I found I bet more horses at 10 to 1 plus than I'd done in previous years as a percentage of the total bets I had. Um, but whether that's just a temporary thing for last season, but you know, I, I generally the approach hasn't changed, but I'm always trying to go where the value is. And I felt last year it was probably at the slightly longer prices. Okay, since we last talked, one of the big things has been that you, you made a big splash on social media, which we'll talk about later. But um, we did invite questions from people that followed you on Twitter and also you writing in the Racing Post a few times. So we got a load of questions from people on Twitter. I haven't got the names of the people that sent the questions in, but you're ready for me to go through these? Yeah. Right, first of all, um, why is it that you... Well, anybody that's not seen your first interviews, which are still on the website... You specialise in hurdle racing. So why do you specialise in hurdles? And would the approach that you use to beat the bookmakers over hurdles work over fences? Um, the specialisation, I think, came from uh, one of my mentors going back to the early 80s was a guy called Billy Both that I did refer to in the early interviews. That he tended to... He told me that that was where he made most of his profits was over hurdles. So from that point, I was more inclined to bet over hurdles. I did... Never really bet over fences, but I did also obviously have on occasions done the flat. But I never really felt that I was playing with the same edge on the flat. So I've concentrated over hurdles. As far as as chases were concerned, yeah, it would definitely work over fences. because, And I know that from Andrew Lowry, who worked with me probably back in the early 2000s. And I told him the approach that I was taking over hurdles. He adopted that approach over fences and has been really successful with it for the past 20 years. So no doubt it would work, yeah. Okay, so doesn't that limit, aren't you limiting yourself and your betting opportunities by doing that? Uh, I would think the reverse because when I bet, I want to bet with a, a, a noble edge, something that I know I've, I'm playing with a decent edge. And by knowing a lot about a few horses, I know that I'm, I have an edge. If I expanded it to do fed chases and flat races, perhaps I dealt with races up to a mile or, say, of a certain category or a handicap grade, then I would spread, spread, spread my time too thinly. So I think I'm much better off concentrating on a r relatively narrow band of, uh, of races. And even over hurdles, I tend to... I do bet in three-mile races, but my best results come at two miles and two mile four. Okay, now you've, you've, so you're selective by nature. Is there a danger that when somebody chooses to be extremely selective in their betting, they can end up missing more winners than they do losers? Mm, I don't know. I don't think I, I wouldn't call myself selective. I really, I'm not that selective. I, you know, if I could find 10 good opportunities a day where I felt that I was playing, sorry, Pretty, was pretty sure that I had the odds in my favour, I would be happy to have 10 bets a day. So I'm only selective because I don't find those opportunities. Now, whether that's because I don't put in enough effort, that's a possibility, or the fact that the market 
generally has become more accurate uh, over the last 20 years, which I'm certain it has. So I have fewer bets now than I had 20 years ago, or even 10 years ago. But I think I like to think the quality of the bets I have certainly hasn't gone down. It's still as good as it was in perhaps uh, e even a touch better. My return on the stakes invested last, last season was the best it's ever been. Now, that could be two things. One is that by having fewer bets, uh, you know, I'm just finding I'm finding better bets. Or two, that the fact that I'm betting horses at longer prices, um, because I think that's where the value has gone, has given me the opportunity that if if I'm if I'm betting winners, then and they're at longer prices, I'm actually bound to make more money. There's obviously a bigger risk involved, and the ups and downs of your betting graph are certainly more extreme when you're backing horses at longer prices. But it's probably well at the moment proven to be. Uh, more profitable. Now it's interesting that you say there that um, the, the pricing has become more accurate from the bookmakers because I think most people agree that the, at the in business end, you know, the, the, the exchanges sort that out. Um, do you ever, ever sort of have to sit on your hands when you see a rick, what looks like a rick to you that's been put up the night before? Yeah, I always sit on my hands. Well, I don't really notice the ricks the night before because I don't ever look at the betting the night before. I mean, it's just no benefit. One, I'm not going to get on at those prices. Two, if I could get on, the amounts would be so small, it really wouldn't be worth it. And the other point is that if you look at something, say I make a horse six to one and it's 20 to one the night before, and yet at 10 o'clock in the morning of the race, when I can get on, it's 10 to one that's still a reasonable price and I'm still playing with an edge. But there may be something in my subconscious that's making me angry or, or deflated because I've missed the 20 to 1. So I'd rather not know what price it's been because it's of absolutely no relevance to me. It'd be like um, you telling me that, you know, I make something 6 to 1, but there's a bloke in the lo your local pub who's, who, who's laying it at 50. I mean, it's a great story, but it doesn't have any benefit to me at all. Yeah, unfortunately he's not. He's dead now. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's go back to this is uh, more questions from Twitter. How do you know that a horse that acts on good or good to soft will act on heavy? Well, you you don't necessarily know, but if you, that so much can be gained from looking at the way a horse gallops. It, you know, it isn't you, it isn't written in stone that if a horse gallops one way, then he'll certainly like. Uh, a certain going and I've been caught out on that in the past but if you watch the way a horse gallops the more when he raises his knee then the higher he raises his knee then the more likelihood is that he is going to be suited by a softer going if they've got as we call it a daisy cutting action where the hoof barely leaves the ground as they gallop then they're more likely to be suited by fast going I think you know a lot of people don't look at the way a horse gallops I certainly do um, it's something I talked about with you and 2019 that you can learn an awful lot as I say you can't guarantee that just because a horse raises hoof high that he's not going to act on decent going <coughs> excuse me or he's going to prefer soft going but generally you know the way a horse moves will decide what uh, going that he can he's at, like to act best on. Now is, is that something that ever changes during a horse's career? Does his action ever change? <sighs> I'm not sure that it's, I don't know. I don't know if it does. I think very good horses, very good horses, they they can appear to, because, they're, because they win, or say a horse really wants good ground, it, just because he wants to good ground doesn't mean to say that he can't win on heavy ground because a horse doesn't go from 100 to zero as far as their ability is concerned because the ground changes. 
their ability, they won't hit the same level of ability on ground, which is unsuitable, but they can still win races. And you find that some punters, they'll sort of scroll down in the betting shop and look at the horse's results. Oh, he's won on heavy, he acts on heavy. He doesn't mean that he acts on heavy. The best way to judge what a horse is capable of doing is looking at the form that he's achieved on a particular going. So, you know, a way in, some people can find an edge in this, is that just because a horse has won on a certain type of ground doesn't mean to say that he acts on it it's, or, or he acts best on it. You're better off looking at the time of the race, the, 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 the opposition that he beat, and that can give you a better guide to, as, to whether, you know, as to whether he's going to be decent on that going. But I think there's a big edge to be gained by people saying he's won on heavy, he's running on heavy today, he acts on it. It, it really does not make sense that that is always the case because it isn't. Okay, now to betting. This is another Twitter question. Do you use a staking plan? Uh, no, I don't. Do you have a, <laughs> do you have a stake? No, I don't use a staking plan. I, I tend to bet, I tend to, so if you think about the longer price horses, horses I'm betting at 50 to 1 to 100 to 1, then you want to have as much on those you can, but you, but realistically, you can't get a huge amount on those horses. So I don't have a, a particular staking plan on those horses. I'm just trying to get on as much as I can without the market uh, moving. But, uh, you know, that sounds big. And it sounds clever to say you want as much on as you can, but reality is you cannot get that much on at those prices. I, I, I tend not to have huge amounts on at short prices. It doesn't mean to say I don't bet horses at short prices, but six to four, two to one, you know, I'll bet them at the prices, but I don't have the biggest bets on. My biggest bets will come when I've got two sides. So when I see good value in the win market and when I see good value in the place market. So that normally comes around in 16 runner handicaps where you're being paid a quarter of the odds of first four or 50 odds of first five you have an automatic in most cases not all but you have an automatic built-in edge on the place part of the bet so you know if you can find value on the win part you can guarantee that the the place part of the bet is as good a value and usually considerably better so you know those are the races that i'll try to have my biggest bets in but I, I wouldn't say I have a staking plan, and I think you have to little, be a little bit more, um, you know, if you, if, you, if you put hard and fast rules into what you do, then I just think it's too restrictive. So I'd rather have a little bit more feel. You know, this it might be a 16-runner handicap with a 5-2 to two shot that I'm desperately keen to, bet up, to, to oppose. So I might bet five, six, seven runners against it each way in that race, knowing that I've got fantastic terms on my side. So as a rule that would be when I'd stake the most. Okay, so would you, um, for example, if you fancied the 66 to 1 shot, would you bet it thinking that's excellent value for the place and if it wins, that's a Brucey bonus? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, because you're very rarely going to think that there's a 66 to 1 shot uh, that's going to win. And, and if, you know, if you look at just last season, because it's recent, I think I had more big price winners last season than I ever had. But the horses that won uh, 20 to 1 plus for me, none of them, if you'd rung me up in, in the morning of the race and thought, what do I think of them? I wouldn't be sat here thinking they'll win. You know, I thought, I think the t term I used more often than not was, I think they, they could scrape in the frame at a big price. And not only they were scraping in the frame, but enough of them were winning. And that's really what made the difference. Okay, Mark, continuing with the, uh, the Twitter questions for part two. What form book software do you use? Um, I've always used race form from the very start so that used to come out in annuals and now it's race form interactive um 
I can't compare it to any others because I haven't used them, but Raceform Interactive uh, just studies form. I'm not particularly interested in stats. I'm sure there's software that is probably better for stats than Raceform Interactive, but I think if you want something which is just concentrating on form, um, it's probably, well, it's, it, it works for me and I've always used it. So I would, I would recommend that to, to people. Okay, now going back to betting, the, um, everybody tells me, even the shrewdest of the shrewd tell me that everybody gets a character building, losing run. Now, how do you deal with them? Um, I think the longer you do something, then the more, so, so like anything in life, that if you go through a hard time, once you've dealt with it once, then when you have to go through it again, it's a little bit easier. Um, but I think the best way to deal with it for me is I know when I'm playing with an edge and in a race. So if I, if I bet in a race where I think the four to one shot should be eight to one, well, four to one is 20%, eight to one is 11%. So that gives me a 9% edge. And say I've got another 16 to one shot, sorry, six to one shot that I feel is underpriced. If those two horses underperform the market expectations, regardless of whether I've won or lost, I know I've played with, with the, the terms in my favour. And that's really all I'm trying to do. It's, you don't know which horses are going to win, which horses are going to lose. So it's really a case of betting with the uh, odds in your favour and just keep on repeating that. And that helps you through the losing runs. Worse is if I was betting for the wrong reasons. I, I might even be getting positive results, but if I was betting for the wrong reasons, then that would be pretty scary because then that, whether I'm winning or whether I'm losing, that's gonna continue. But if you, if you play with the odds in your favor, eventually uh, it will turn. I think the key is to not change anything when you're having losing runs. You obviously don't, well, I certainly don't enjoy my work anywhere near as much. Um, there can be a sort of subconscious feeling that any work you're putting in is going to be wasted because you're going to carry on losing. But every poor run I've ever had, and I've had plenty, um, it has always turned. And I've never changed anything. I've just tried to work harder. Okay, now it's easy for you to say because you're a long-standing, successful professional punter for 30-odd years, so you're confident in your own ability. About somebody that is sort of fairly recently got into it has had some good success and all of a sudden they're going through a, a you know how did you deal with it in your early days would you would you be looking at what you're doing or would you be reducing your stakes or anything like that for, for somebody that's not got the self-confidence that you have because they've only been doing it for a few years well I think back then so I didn't really appreciate what it was to play with the odds in my favour. So I, so when I analysed a race, I was perhaps looking for a winner rather than the looking for the horses I want to pose. Now, and if, if so, if anybody does that, if you if you think, think of a reason why if someone bets in a race, they should be able to explain to a small child or a golden retriever in less than one minute why they're having a good bet. And if you can put that in, if you can explain why you're having the bet and you can put those thoughts in your head, why this is a good bet, then you can figure out afterwards, did you play for the right reasons? Did you play for the wrong reasons? If you've played for the right reasons, you will be fine for sure. If you play for the wrong reasons, then you won't be fine. Now, uh, you know, I guess out of every hundred bets I have, I get it I actually get it wrong 20% of the time, but 80% of the time, I probably get it right. And enough of those 80% win to make it profitable for me so I would say just play try to make sure that you understand why you're having the bet if you don't understand why you're having the bet 
how do you know whether you're on a lucky run or an unlucky run? You have no idea. So really, really helpful to, to explain why you're having the bet in your head. You don't have to explain it to anybody else, but figure out where your edge is in the bet. If you haven't got an edge, you are going to lose. Now, think about the average punter. They start with a, a betting bank over here, okay? And whatever betting bank they start with, they are going to end up at zero. That doesn't mean to say they're going to be out on the streets when it gets to zero because they're going to presumably replenish that bank from other income. But if you don't play with the odds in your favour, you know, you will have ups, you'll have downs, but the, the line is always going to end up at, at zero. It's not going to go in a linear fashion, but it'll end up there eventually. The opposite is true if you play with the odds in your favour. So you start here, you might go up and down and you're going to go like that over a period of time. But again, it's going to be straight up. If you've got the odds in your favour, accept that there will always be down times because there always will be. But the, but the up times will always outweigh the down times. And, and that's really the difference. Again, the line isn't linear. If, if, you, if you play with the odds in your favour, you're not going to guarantee to win or start here and end up here in a straight line. It'll happen over a period of time and there will be big dips. But... You know, it's it's quite hard to explain what playing with the odds in your favour is. But it's if you can imagine playing roulette where the odds, there's 37 numbers. So the odds are 36 to 1. The casino pays you out at 35 to 1. It doesn't matter how lucky you are in the short term. You will eventually lose all your money if you stay at the wheel long enough. Were the casino to pay you out at 38 to 1, you couldn't possibly lose. As long as you had sufficient capital to see you through the huge downs, which there would be, if you stayed at the table long enough, you could make a full-time income from doing it. So the odds changing from just 35 to 1 to 38 to 1, which is minuscule, will actually hugely change the, 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 the long-term result purely because you played with one system which when you're playing with the odds against you, you can't possibly win. When you play with the odds with you, you can't possibly lose, although you can have, obviously, losing times. OK, right. Back to the more practical. Trackers, do you use one? No. No, I don't use trackers. I, I tend to look at races um, just as an equation. So I've got eight runners and I want to look at those eight runners compared to one another. I can understand why people do use trackers. Perhaps they haven't got sufficient time to look at all the form um, that they would have. But I sometimes think if you, if you, if you track horses, then that gives you a, perhaps something in your subconscious which makes you overly positive about that horse and doesn't let you look at other factors, i.e. what's it running against, what are the conditions, what's its price. So I, I've never used a tracker. OK. Now, you only concentrate on jump racing. So what do you do in the summer when there's much less? Um, well, I relax a bit more, do the gardening, um, figure out how I can do better the next season. I, I, to, to, to be honest with you, I, the, the, although it does, the jump racing isn't as intense as, as flat racing, um, because there isn't so much of it. Even the winters are exceptionally long. So it, by the end of April, I'm normally uh, ready for a, for a break. OK, and if you actually have a break, do you bother looking at the summer jumps? So I this year, first year that I didn't... Uh, so I think the last well, the last day I studied form was the 25th of April, and I haven't, I haven't studied a single race since then, and here we are now at the end of August, and I'll come back studying again probably from mid-September to be ready for the beginning of October. Okay, it's a practical one. Another Twitter question. How do you turn odds into percentages? Um, it's quite straightforward. So if you have four to, four to one shot, add one to it and divide that number into 100. So four to one is 
because you've got four, add one, that's five, divide that number into 100, 100 divided by five is 20. Okay, now then, any good books, oh, I assume they mean racing related, that you'd recommend? Um, there's been very good, I think there's been some really good books. Alan Potts wrote two good books. Um, obviously, Nick Morden wrote a really good book in the late 80s, early 90s, which a lot of, you know, a lot of people studied and learned a huge amount from. Um, I thought Patrick Veach's book 10 years ago, although he wasn't really going into specifics about how you could make it pay, even the two or three pages that he wrote towards the end of his book, I thought were just absolutely hit the nail on the head which was basically saying you know you have to play when you've got the value and you've got a little bit more information than everybody else i don't really think there is one book that you could say here's a manual for for how to to bet exactly the right way and i would you know i've just read i've tried to read every book that's ever been been written and whilst i might not figure that i agree with perhaps 95 percent of it or or haven't learned anything new then there might be 1% or 2% when you learn something that you can add. So everything's worth reading, but I wouldn't say that there's one particular book. But I would be, always be very careful that any book that's sold this as, as something that's, that's easy, I wouldn't, you know, I, I, wouldn't, I would avoid the, those books because it isn't easy. OK, you're going to write one yourself? No. That's a quick answer. Uh, right, this is another one. Um, how important is value in your betting? It's everything. You know, it is absolutely everything. Um, it's a bit like, it, I, I just can't figure why value doesn't get more written about, particularly in, 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 in betting, than in every other aspect of life, value is really important. I mean, if you had two garages equidistance from your home and you had to buy petrol, which one are you likely to go to, where it's cheaper or more expensive? You're going to go to the one where it's cheaper. And... Value in betting means that if you can bet something at, at four to one, uh, sorry, if you bet something at, at five to one that should be four to one, that that's that's value. Some people think, well, it's four to one, it's drifted to five to one, and that reduces their confidence. Where actually, they're getting better value. It's a bit like the, st the stock market. Many people underperform the stock market because they tend to buy in when things are getting expensive. So they watch the graph of the share going like that and they buy in here be because they believe that, that it's going to carry on forever. But they are better off by buying in when it's, when it's cheaper. It's the same with horses. You know, if, you, if I back something at, at four to one, I need 20% of them uh, to win, uh, to, to, make it, to make it pay. If I back it at seven to two, you know, I need 22.5%. So it, the better the better value you're receiving is it does make a huge difference in the long term you can't just bet horses blindly every horse has a percentage chance of winning we can never know exactly it's impossible you know there isn't a formula that tells you this is the exact chance of the horse but if you if you back horses beyond their prices you'll do okay and it's you know if I I set a figure for a horse say I want to back it at six to one if it's four to one I won't back it I'll watch it. I hope it wins because it sort of proves that my opinion was right. I'm not going to be angry that I didn't bet it. Um, and if it's 10 to 1, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to bet if it's 16 to 1, I'm probably going to try and have a little bit more on. It's absolutely fundamental. I, I think it's, you know, for people who genuinely want to make racing pay, I think value is, you know, something that is under-talked about and really should be talked about more because 
it's so important. And just on that, so if you you made a horse six to one, it's four yeah. to one, you didn't back it, it wins at two to one. Now, have you made a rick? Probably. Thinking that it should have been a six to one chance. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I see that point. I probably have. Yeah, I probably have. Or there might be some information that I'm not aware of that, that's come to hand. Um, you really have to keep on repeating the process because, as I said earlier, you know, I'm going to get it wrong at least 20% of the time. I get stuff wrong. And so in that situation, I'll try to learn why did I, why did I make it, why did I believe it was 4 to 1 and the market makes it 2 to 1 or why did I believe it was 6 to 1. So there'll be something that they're seeing that I'm not. Now, just because the market makes something 2 to 1 and I make it 4 to 1 and it wins, it doesn't mean they're right and I'm wrong. And equally... If it loses and they've made it two to one, I've made it four to one. It doesn't mean that I'm right and they're wrong. So you you um, value is something that's quite hard to to figure, um, and knowing knowing exactly whether you're right or you're wrong again is quite hard to figure. But again, going back to what I said earlier, it's understanding why you played, and if you play for the right reasons long enough, then you'll end up doing okay. But it isn't. It's not something that you know. I can. People say to me, Sai, who don't follow horses, so they understand what I do. They say, when you've got a winner, give me a call. When you're, sorry, no, they don't say when you've got a winner. When, you, when you've got a good bet, give me a call. Now, their definition of a good bet is a winner, is a, something that's going to win. That's the definition of a good bet. My definition of a good bet is finding a horse that should be 6 to 1, that I can bet at 16 to 1. Now, if I make something 16 to 1, sorry, 6 to 1, if I think it's got a 6 to 1 chance of winning... I'm basically saying that's around about a 15%, 14% chance that I think it's got of winning. So my idea of a good bet, 15% chance of winning, 85% chance of losing. Now, these people would get very, very sick of me very quickly if I rang them up and say, here you go, this is a really good bet, but it's got a 15% chance of winning or an 85% chance of losing. So the definition of what people perceive to be a good bet is completely is two different things. If, you, if you're here to make it pay, your definition can only be, am I getting the right price? Is, is this price good value? If you're a once-off, you know, if you bet twice a year, your definition of a good bet will purely be whether it wins or whether it loses. Right, very interesting stuff in part two there, Mark. We'll carry on with the uh, value theme for a minute this is another question from twitter is the value at the front of the market or at the bigger prices i think it's probably at the bigger prices i think the front of the market has certainly become more accurate in recent times um again that might change so this may not date particularly well but last season i certainly felt over jumps that the the mark the the better value was at horses that were priced 10 to 1 and above and I, I found very little value in places where I found a lot of value 20 years ago, which was in the four to one, four to one to six to one range, or perhaps four to one to eight to one range with horses I could back each way. Um, and I bet very, you know, far fewer of those last year than I had in previous seasons. And I was finding that I was finding backing horses at 66 to one that I would normally would be quite happy to back at 16 to one, 20 to one. Your loads of those got beat. But enough of them won. So last season, for sure, the 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 value was at the the, the bigger end of the market um, or the higher end. And you know, I guess people do tend to spend more time concentrating on the front of the market. Horses tend to sort of contract 
in prices towards the front of the market. And perhaps, I mean, that, I think there was one day at Wincanton. Um, I was happy to back a horse at Wincanton, probably going back to last October. Um, I wanted to back him at 20 to 1. And I think uh, half past nine or 10 o'clock, he was 40 to 1. And by the time by the time I backed him, he was 150. And that was in the morning prices. You could back him at 150, 125 to 1. And his, and his price was lengthening in a very small percentage terms. 40 to 1 out to 150 to 1 is not a big uh, move in percentage terms. But his price was lengthening because the, the front of the market was attracting all the money. And, and those are the types. Um, and he, and he, he didn't win, just in case you're, you're wondering. Um, they talk about the front of the market and the difference in the percentages. It must be, obviously for somebody like you, more difficult to pinpoint the value so you, you're not going to say, oh, I'll make that six to five, but it's only 11 to 10. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, I find it hard to pinpoint the value at the front of the market. Yeah, should a, how do you, it isn't easy. Should a horse be six to four or five to four, which is quite a big uh, difference percentage wise, a far bigger difference than mm. 33 to yeah. one to 50 to one. Perhaps again, that might just be, you know, one of my own personal failings that I struggle to 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 understand what price a horse should be. And I think if you look at the tissues that I did for, for most of the races from last season, I tended to underestimate the chances of the horses towards the front of the market and overestimate the horses at the, the longer prices. So I was fairly more compact in, in my betting um, than, than the bookmakers who would, or it's not necessarily the bookmakers, it's, it's the punters who form the market that the bookmakers produce, um, where punters seem to have more, a much wider uh, divergence between the front of the market and the bigger prices. Mm. And I, I don't know, it might not continue, but I, I'm happy if it does. It, it's tougher because you do go through longer losing runs. I had my second longest losing run last winter. Um, but, you know, I made more money last winter. So it's up, it, it is ups and downs. So from, from a punter's point of view as well, if you're having a tenner on one at 40 and it wins at 66, it's a massive difference. If you've had it on at five to four and it wins at six to five. Yeah. It's pretty much irrelevant as far as in the bigger picture. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the front end of the market again. So if, what's your thoughts about betting odds on? If you made a horse a five on chance and you could bet it at two on, would you, would you sort of yeah. open your shoulders? Yeah, I have no. I genuinely have no problem betting odds on. You know, I'm happy to bet. I'm happy to bet at fifty on. You know, you can bet. You can bet at fifty on if you if you if you see a photo finish, um, say at Brighton, something's one ahead, and and you can bet it at um, one oh one then why wouldn't you if you know it's one and there's been you know there's there's no likelihood of interference or a steward's inquiry so i don't think i, I just think as long as you know you're getting the value and i keep on talking about value it's getting tedious and boring i guess but yeah i'm just i'm just purely about value size so and the value can be at any price it can be it can be at five to one on can be at 100 to 1 and a horse can be better value at, at 1 to 5 than a horse can be at 200 to 1. So it, it, you shouldn't restrict yourself and I certainly don't by prices. I think pre-market, um, so, so morning prices, I tend not to bet horses at like 6 to 4, 5 to 4. Um, uh, yeah, I, just the way I've always done it and it, hasn't, it might have cost me money but it probably hasn't cost me too much. I'd rather back horses at slightly bigger prices. Okay, so how much time does somebody need to dedicate to form study to become successful? Well, I think any time you dedicate to form study will make you more successful. So I, I guess it's like saying, you know, you want the most beautiful garden. You know, if you did, a, if you did an hour more than you did last week, that's going to improve the, the results in, on, your, on your garden. So the more time one can spend 
I don't, I don't think it's wasted because I think you, you, you see things, but I would definitely be an advocate of, of, of narrowing down and specializing in a smaller number of horses. And again, if somebody came to me and they said they wanted to work with me, what would be the best advice I could give them? I would say, spend time on a very narrow band of horses and spend time in the lowest grade of races that you can. And I know that goes against the grain because people say that low, low grade horses are uh, less consistent and that's probably true but that doesn't mean to say there can't be value because you can price in the inconsistency so if they are more inconsistent then surely you are going to find better value at the longer prices because the market re tends to react to what's happened more recently and if you look at um, the betting horses that that raced a year ago uh, um, have a better return on investment although it's still a negative one than horses that ran in the last 14 days so it's i i think you know specializing is a good way to, to to if you've got limited time it's probably a good way if you've got plenty of time specialize um, and go into a field that not many people study people do tend to spend a lot of time looking at the major races at the major festivals you're probably going to struggle to find an edge there. And in recent years, I mean, we used to love Cheltenham because the bookmakers gave so many concessions and the each way terms were incredible. And we all remember you could bet, well, there was the Supreme Novice Hurdle last year, which we've talked about. Uh, this is 2020, where you could bet each way first seven with William Hill. This year, I think there was only seven runners in the race or something. So, and it, it, but there was no, you know, this year at Cheltenham, there were very few advantageous each way terms. Okay, now your father was a trainer. You've owned horses. Is inside information useful? I would wouldn't say that that there wouldn't be the odd occasion that it's not useful. But if you said to me, was it? Should you take it? Would it, is there a benefit to 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 exploring that avenue? I'd say definitely not. I wouldn't bother with inside information. For one bit of information that you get that's that's of any use, you'll probably get 20 bits of information that isn't any any use at all. So how do you decipher between the two? Now, if you have a certain source that always seems to come up with the right answers, then perhaps, you know, it would be wrong of me to say that that should be totally ignored. But I think when people are asking that question, they're saying, do I need inside information or do I need form study? And if you can do one of the two, well, I would say form study is 99% of the time and inside information is 1%. Personally, I've never taken any, ins any notice of inside information ever. And if there have been laps, perhaps I got that wrong, there ha I, perhaps I have on one or two occasions, or I've let it cloud my judgment. They've been occasional lapses and it's never, ever worked out for me. So I, I would say you're better off... It concentrating on form and the other thing is if you're trying to make a living from the game well what happens if this guy who who's given me all this good inside information suddenly gets run over by a bus you know my source of income has suddenly dried up where am I gonna find another source like that so I'd rather concentrate on something that I can control okay mathematical pract practicalities what's the better value quarter of the odds four places 16 runner handicaps or a fifth of the odds five places if they were betting the same a fifth the odds first five is better value than a quarter first four okay now would you lay short price horses you don't fancy rather than trying to find horses to back against them 
mathematically, you're actually better off finding horses to bet against them than, than laying one. Because it, let's say I don't fancy an even money shot and in a 10-runner race, if I lay it, I'm effectively betting the, the, the other nine horses to the same stake. Yet, I can't possibly believe that the other nine have an equal chance of beating the even money shot that I'm trying to play. It's a lot easier just to lay one. Um, but personally, I, if I don't fancy an even money shot I'm, and I don't really know what will win, I will probably spread my stake out over six of the other runners, but in different terms of whether, depending on, sorry, different amounts, depending one on the value I'm getting and two on the likelihood of, of the victory. All right, Mark, now that's all the questions that we had from, um, from Twitter. Now, like I said at the beginning of the interview, since we last talked in a couple of years ago you you went on to social media and you sort of embraced it for a while you got three nearly four thousand followers i think you'd done stuff in the racing post you were putting advice up there um you annoyed a lot of the shrewdies but by their you know their responses were quite um quite hard to fathom quite aggressive is I that thought. shrewdies well the, the you know the ones that sort of shouldn't probably need to learn from the good advice that you were putting out there and obviously getting the 4,000 odd followers meant that a lot of people were grateful to receive it. And since then you've come off. Now is that because they've all, they've sort of, they've scared you away from the playground or are there other reasons why you've decided to duck away from social media again? Because you did wind up, you, you sort of, you phrased things in a way that you probably knew was going to upset some people. I wasn't intentional. Are you sure? It was, I don't think it was intentional. No, I, no, I last, so I think I went on, um, I started last October and I would say overall that my experience on Twitter was a positive one. So it led to, it led to, I could, I could count numerous, numerous things which were real positive for it, uh, for, for it. For, so I certainly don't regret being on it. The, the, the negative about Twitter and the reason I came off was purely was time constraints. I, I didn't want to be somebody who was just on Twitter and never adding to a to a debate or trying to you know just sit there and read everything else. I wanted to to impart some things that I felt that were would, would be helpful for people. Now whether they believe they would be helpful or not, you know, that's I I had no idea. Some people found it helpful. Um, I received a lot of direct messages and interacted with people a lot over the the course of time that I was on it and you know I think people enjoyed that and hopefully learned little bits from me and I'm sure I learned little bits from them but it, it, again it, it comes we've talked about value a lot and I didn't really believe for me there was a huge amount of value in long term in Twitter if you think say you know you probably spend or I was probably spending half an hour a day on Twitter so that's three and a half hours a week that's 182 hours a year so that's four and a half working weeks spent on Twitter now I'm not I'm not trying to sell anything. Um, and I just didn't really feel that it was giving me value. Having, having been on it and not been on it, I would say if somebody was asking for advice whether they should, you know, I, it, it's a toss of a coin. But just personally, I didn't really feel that I was getting enough value from it. And you got, you had the, um, one of a fairly unique um, response of somebody actually impersonating you briefly. And, <laughs> and uh, how did you feel when they put the picture well, of I, 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 I did. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't quite see. <laughs> I couldn't 
quite see the relevance of Barry Manley, but presumably they did. I, I found it actually quite humorous. And all the things that I ever saw in there, and, you know, the, the, the good outweigh the bad. And there, are two, there were several people that seemed to definitely have it in for me. And I did find it all quite humorous. It was funny, though. It, I found it humorous, and I laughed about it. But other people that are probably closer to me were annoyed by it or, or sort of stressed by it. But now I genuinely, it, it really didn't worry me. Um, I think the reason being is that, you know, over the years, you've, I've had to create quite a tough skin. Well, I set out uh, doing this job um, way before social media in the early 90s um, when I was advising people. And as we talked about earlier, your profits don't go up in a straight line. So people join at inopportune moments and people join at good moments. People join me at good moments and I'm, you know, the second coming. And if they join at a bad moment, then I'm the biggest con man that's ever walked the earth. And so you do get used to being criticised. And I think as long as you felt, and I, and I think as far as Twitter was concerned, I was trying to be helpful. Whether people took it that way or, or took it any other way, that's their problem, certainly isn't mine. But I, I genuinely, I genuinely didn't know how I'd feel, but I always found it quite humorous. And the fact that, Sai, I think it's, um, if someone wants to spend their morning um, <laughs> impersonating you, well, you know, they've wasted their, they've wasted five hours of their life that they're never going to get back. So who's the fool? No, I'm going to be, as a fire, I'm going to be peddling this, obviously, on Twitter, because we find it a very good tool to publicise the, uh, the videos. Is there any chance you'll, you'll make a comeback at some point? I don't think I will. No, I don't think I will, because it, it really is to value. So, again, I just thought it was, I spent... Um, enough time on there and it was happening at a time when the country was locked down so there were so many other things that I would normally do in my life that I couldn't do particularly over the winter um, I didn't really tweet that much during the summer um, which made me feel that I should tweet some, a little bit more because I think if people have, have gone out of the way to to follow you you should give them some some stuff but I just felt go, looking ahead that there really wasn't enough value in it for me um, it is quite interesting though listening to other people's points of view and and people that you that you know from one form of life uh, that you have a huge amount of respect for in, in, in their, their professional career and then you start to read something about their political views or um, views about things like Brexit and you think well you know why are you still going on about that that was like five years ago <laughs> it's like meeting someone in a pub who's talking about losses that they had at Cheltenham two or three years ago and I just I think the thing that I struggled with most on Twitter is understanding why people spent so much time looking back and moaning about stuff as opposed to looking forward and making things better in the future. Um, I guess I, I learned something about people, but um, I, won't, I won't be making a return. Okay, and on that note, Barry, I'm sorry, I'm Mark, <laughs> Mark Oda. Thank you very much. Thanks, Sai. New Betting People interviews are published every week at Star Sports exclusive interviews with the key people from the world of sports betting. Check out our full library of interviews at starsportsbet.co.uk. BeGambleAware.org. Over 18 only.